Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. our intro we promised you complex and controversial conversations and we are back again to wrap up our conversation on one of the most complex and controversial topics of the last 12 months critical race theory last week we told you the story of how this bootstrapped leap of faith framework came to be and how it came to dominate conversations in the news media and at the company water cooler We talked about why perspectives like critical race theory are important as we work to build a better America and how not addressing these hard topics can leave us with wounds that will continue to fester and weep and pus and rot until we, I know, (laughs) I did that just for you. That's so gross. (laughs) Until we do the unpleasant work of addressing them. And the longer we wait, the more unpleasant it gets. This week, don't worry. We're not going to take that analogy any further than we already have. We're not going to compare Tucker Carlson to necrotizing fasciitis, no matter how much we may personally believe that he is decaying American journalism, turning it into a stinking, rotting pile of... Well, like I said, we're done with that. Instead, we're going to talk about how CRT and other social science theories are used, and take a look at the areas in which the application of critical race theory is the most controversial in schools, and in diversity training. Oh yeah, and then we'll tackle the whole CRT equals Marxism thing. We have been called Marxist so many times since the last episode aired. It's my favorite insult. It's crazy. Get a new insult, guys. It's, It's mostly my favorite because I know that the people who are using that insult don't actually understand what they're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I do. I don't know. It's a nerd thing. Okay, so let's talk about academic theories for a minute, because we think that much of the turmoil around CRT and its applications comes from a misunderstanding of what frameworks like critical race theory are and how they're actually used academically and practically. If you haven't spent a significant amount of time in the world of academia, And when we say academia, we're talking about the culture and the worldview that exists among professional learners and researchers, then you may never have had a reason to understand or use academic frameworks. So we'd like to take a minute here to explain. Fair warning, this is probably going to be a bit dry, 
as many things relating to academic research can be, but we're going to try to make it as understandable as possible without, uh, what's the academic version of mansplaining? Uh, without sounding like condescending assholes. And we'll try to give you bullet points at the end. Here we go. When we're talking about something like critical race theory, we have to talk about two important tools that academic researchers use to help them break down the information they're working with. Theoretical frameworks and conceptual frameworks. A theoretical framework provides a specific perspective through which the researcher can examine a topic. Usually this perspective is an existing or established theory that's relevant in the field being researched. These frameworks offer established guideposts against which the researcher can evaluate their topic, allowing them to examine the information in a way that stays focused on their end goal and produces conclusions that are useful to others researching the same things. So for example, if a researcher wanted to examine how a classroom of kindergartners uses and shares school supplies over the course of a school year, they could choose to do that using the framework of social cognitive theory, which offers one explanation of how people learn through social interaction and feedback. Or they could choose to take a non-traditional approach and use something like social inclusion theory to examine the kids' behavior and development. Social inclusion theory examines how fully individuals are able to participate in their society based on a certain set of criteria. And it isn't the first thing that many child development researchers would use to examine the behaviors around sharing classroom supplies, but it's an option. And the fact that it's an option illustrates a really important point here. In any given field, there is a huge variety of theories that can be applied to a topic. And there's an even huger variety of theories from tangential fields that could be relevant to the topic as well. Currently, CRT is used as one theoretical framework through which researchers in many fields can examine relevant occurrences and ideas. But you, and, and so many others, need to understand that there is not one singular theory in any discipline that is used to analyze and understand the entirety of that field. Darwin's theory of evolution doesn't explain every aspect of animal biology, and critical race theory doesn't claim to explain every aspect of race relations in America. Instead, it provides some guideposts through which researchers can choose to examine legal and social issues relevant to racialized people in America. It joins frameworks like the Community Cultural Wealth Model, an inclusive excellence framework, and equity-mindedness in providing perspectives through which we can examine diversity and race and marginalization in our society. Okay, so now that you understand theoretical frameworks, we're going to flip things around a bit and talk about conceptual frameworks, where a theoretical framework guides how researchers interpret information from the start a conceptual framework comes into play when they're analyzing information that doesn't come from the perspective of a singular theory, when one theory isn't sufficient to encompass the research being considered, or when they're trying to develop a new framework or an understanding where one doesn't exist yet. Take, for example, Archimedes, who used existing theories about gravity and buoyancy to interpret information about how objects behave when they're immersed in water. 
He then took that information and developed a hypothesis about how to accurately identify if an immersed object was made of gold. Conceptual frameworks draw from multiple resources to help researchers create something new. This is essentially what happened with critical race theory in the story we told you last week. Kimberly Crenshaw and her colleagues identified the need for a framework through which they could examine the law and other social constructs, but found that there wasn't an existing theory that addressed all of the elements they thought should be considered. So they pulled from critical law studies and other frameworks, identified common themes in the context they were examining, right, and created what would become CRT. Okay, so bullet points, as promised. One, researchers use both theoretical and conceptual frameworks to analyze information. Two, theoretical frameworks set specific guideposts by which information is analyzed. Three, conceptual frameworks draw from multiple theories and practices to create new systems of understanding. Four, critical race theory started as a conceptual framework and now functions as a theoretical framework. But why did we just ask you to sit through uh, just shy of 10 minutes of academic theory discussion? Well, because there is a fundamental misunderstanding in the media, by politicians, and your average man, Jack, on the streets about just what the heck CRT is. We shared a report from All Sides Media on our Instagram story last week that illustrated what people on both sides of the political aisle think that CRT is, and the answers were all over the board. Some supporters defined it as treating everyone the same, teaching children that racism is wrong, or the history of racism. Detractors called it a Marxist proposal, black minorities wanting more, and a farce that attempts to blame all of society's ills on white people. I love that one. <laughs> but not one of the answers to that poll of people who claim to have read or heard a lot about CRT in the last year, points to an understanding that it's a framework through which researchers in their field interpret information about topics in their field. The theory itself is not a handbook for understanding or teaching about racism, and anybody who uses the principles of the theory in that way is doing it wrong. Like Kimberly Crenshaw herself said, the idea that there is a unified perspective from everyone who uses CRT in their research is only held by those who oppose the idea. So when congressmen and PTA heads are railing against CRT in their schools and their cultural sensitivity training, unless their teachers and HR professionals are in the business of teaching people how to apply an academic framework to create a research-informed approach to their everyday lives, what they're really arguing against are perspectives on American history and racial dynamics that they believe to be informed by critical race theory. But they're forgetting, or intentionally leaving out, that CRT is not the only theory that looks at issues of power and wealth and justice and history through a racial lens. And that's a key word that I really want to drive home right, here, right now. We've said framework many, many times. Mm -hmm. But think of it like a lens. If, if the framework concept doesn't work for you, it's just a big lens. It's a magnifying glass. And you use that magnifying glass 
to examine something. And that lens shows you what's there. It just, that's all it does. It's just one of many lenses that you could choose to look at a problem with. Exactly. It's not the only one. Not everybody's wearing the same glasses. Exactly. But before we get lost in the weeds again, this is a good time to start talking about the fuss that's being made about CRT in the most prominent contexts. So let's start at the beginning, shall we, with the match that Christopher Rufo lit and tossed into the forest that is the conservative news media. Let's talk about cultural sensitivity and diversity training, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. Last week, as we were telling you the story of critical race theory, we talked about Christopher Rufo and how his reporting on whistleblower claims of anti-American, racially polarizing diversity training programs inspired swift action by former President Trump and sparked a witch hunt in the conservative media. But what is it that these whistleblowers say happened? And how do those claims tie back to critical race theory? Rufo and many others in the conservative media claim these diversity training programs are, quote, teaching critical race theory, end quote, including anti-white and anti-American sentiments like America was built on the backs of enslaved people. White Americans are complicit in systemic racism because they uphold structures that perpetuate racial inequity. (laughs) And and all white people are racist, whether they know it or not. And they claim that these programs force attendees to accept and participate in dialogue on these principles. Keyword, force to accept. Yes. Of even more concern is their offering in federal or federal contract workplaces. In September 2020, Donald Trump issued an executive order excluding any diversity and inclusion training interpreted as containing, quote, divisive concepts, quote, race or sex stereotyping, or race or sex scapegoating, from obtaining federal contracts. While the terms used here are broad, it was widely understood that concern about critical race theory was an essential catalyst in the development of this policy. And then on his first day in office, President Biden rescinded that executive order. And on June 25th, he signed his own executive order reinforcing his administration's focus on diversity and inclusion, including instructions for agency leaders to provide greater access to training that covers many of the ideas outlined by scholars of CRT, among other diversity and equity concepts. And the public has watched closely as this tug of war over critical race theory has gotten more and more intense. But what does the research say about programs like this? Are they teaching critical race theory? Do they really make the assertions Rufo claims they do? Is participation in them mandated? Who chooses the programs? One question at a time. We'll get to this. First, are these controversial diversity training programs teaching critical race theory? 
We see what they're going for here, and admittedly the argument on this one is semantic. But unless these training programs are literally teaching people to use the theoretical framework of critical race theory to analyze how race plays a role in the broad context of American society, then no, they're not. <laughs> but what they might be doing is sharing perspectives and ideas developed through the application of critical race theory to the context of intercultural dynamics in the workplace. If you recall, CRT has fundamental guiding principles that are used as the core drivers of research and analysis done from a critical race perspective. One of them is recognition that race is not biologically real, but is socially constructed and socially significant. It recognizes that science, as demonstrated in the Human Genome Project, refutes the idea of biological racial differences. According to scholars Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk, race is the product of social thought and is not connected to biological reality. Another idea is that acknowledgement that racism is a normal feature of society and is embedded within systems and institutions like the legal system that replicate racial inequality. This dismisses the idea that racist incidents are aberrations but instead are manifestations of structural and systemic racism. CRT rejects the popular understandings about racism, such as arguments that confine racism to a few bad apples. CRT recognizes that racism is codified in law, embedded in structures, and woven into public policy. They reject claims of meritocracy or colorblindness, and recognize that it's the systemic nature of racism that bears primary responsibility for reproducing racial inequality. Finally, there's a recognition of the relevance of people's everyday lives to scholarship. This includes embracing the lived experiences of people of color, including those preserved through storytelling, and rejecting deficit-informed research that excludes the epistemologies of people of color. And absolutely, these ideas can be seen in some of the training materials that have been held up as examples of federally funded indoctrination into CRT. That's one thing that scholarly research does. It informs the development of real-world practical tools that we can use to interpret and navigate our society. But CRT is not the only framework to identify these core ideas. For example, culture of prejudice theory asserts that prejudice is embedded in our society and reinforced both consciously and subconsciously. Do these programs really make the claims that Rufo says they do? Again, that's, that's down to semantics. Mostly it's down to this thing that persuasive speakers do when they take a fact and package it in interpretation to color how we receive and process that fact. For example, Rufo says that Sandia Laboratories sent its white male executives to a three-day re-education camp to be indoctrinated, and that they were forced to write letters apologizing to women and minorities for their privilege. <laughs> but... The workbook for that session, which was called White Men and Allies Learning Lab, says things like, you choose your level of self-disclosure. 
share what's true for you while being respectful of others, and everyone's input is valid. Do some of these trainings explicitly say that America was built on the backs of enslaved peoples? Yeah, they do. Do they say that white people are complicit, whether willingly or unwillingly, in systemic racism? Some of them do. Do they say that all white people are, quote, guilty, heavy air quotes here, because of the color of their skin? Well, not the ones that I've seen, but that's a persuasive interpretation of that previous statement. The bottom line here is that some of these trainings probably say things that many attendees won't agree with. That's a fact. And if you're in a company-mandated training, that might be really uncomfortable. But hearing things that you disagree with and moving on from them is just a part of everyday life. And hearing, or even attending, does not require agreement with the information being presented. As for whether or not these programs are mandated, and who chooses the presenter or the curriculum, well, that varies from company to company. Is it legal for companies to mandate that their employees attend diversity training programs? Yeah. But how each organization handles which programs are required and the consequences of not attending, well, that varies. And again, even though they may require attendance, they can't force somebody to agree with it. Right. A lot of this, I think, comes down to a, I guess, people attending these classes and feeling very attacked by them, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, again, we talked about it last week, there's this perception that racism is a personal feeling between me and you. Like, I dislike you because of the color of your skin, right? And so if you go to a class that talks about how racism is something that basically if you don't actively work against it, you are complicit in it, you go, you get, you get confronted with that idea, you're going to feel really attacked because I'm, I, I hate racism. I'm not racist. And how dare you accuse me of such a thing? I have black friends. Um, <laughs> but those people fail to grasp the deeper meaning. And that might be a communication issue, right? right. It might be a, a, a misstep in the presenter or the way that they were presenting the ideas, or it might be due to this, this broader conversation we're having in, a society, in our society where it feels like we're just predisposed to talk past each other and not try to understand what the other person's actually saying. Because to me, it doesn't seem like that radical of an idea to think that the people who broke away and formed the Confederacy when they rejoined the United States would still try to practice the things that they felt, right? Mm -hmm. it, just because they couldn't, just because they couldn't do what they were doing before, it doesn't mean that the laws that they were writing would suddenly forget those ideas. Right. And as we saw with voting rights and the battle around equality for African Americans post slavery, right? That obviously happened. There were a bunch of people who resisted that and that influence pervade like what is the word I'm trying to think of? Um, that influence was woven through our society. 
So yeah. that doesn't seem radical to me. And I'm pretty sure anybody who heard that could understand that concept. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, we, we try so hard, especially in American society to avoid discomfort that the idea that we might have to sit in an uncomfortable situation feels so abhorrent to us that we would literally ask people to make laws that say we don't have to be uncomfortable. And that goes for a whole host of things on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. So this is not, it's not unique to people who don't want to hear about the perspectives of CRT, but it does give us an opportunity to reflect on how often we're willing to be uncomfortable and look for opportunities to learn in that discomfort, even if you don't agree with everything. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I was flipping through a lot of these decks. There's some of them that I don't agree with everything in them. Yeah. And I'm basically who they're talking about. Like I'm a brown skinned female in the workplace. I don't agree with everything that they're saying, but that's okay because these are programs that are built by independent people and are brought in. And those people are responsible for teaching that. And you take from it what you take from it. You know, so. It's very mature of you, Robin. I know. I know. I'm just the most mature ever. So mature. Yeah. But all that to say, it's a lot of fuss. It's a lot of fuss for things that people don't agree with. um, But they're not making people agree with CRT. That's the conclusion that we came to. But you know what they are doing? What are they doing? Brainwashing our children. Yes, I love it when they do that. CRT in schools, making them hate themselves. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about it. Okay, dear audience, you could possibly be forgiven for not knowing this little statistic because knowing it would mean that you consume Fox News a little too obsessively. But Fox News has mentioned critical race theory more than 1,900 times, 1,900 times in the last three and a half months. For comparison, they used the phrase a total of 114 times total in 2020 for the whole year. Now, please note, this is only the number of times they've used the exact phrase critical race theory, meaning the actual number of mentions of the idea is likely higher if they abbreviate it or use the acronym or refer to it a little more vaguely. And many, many of these conversations are saying that this theory teaches that one race is inherently superior to another and that it's being force-fed to our children in school to brainwash them. The New York Post's Miranda Devine, who is also a Fox contributor, claimed that CRT is a Marxist concept that will warp the minds of American children. In fact, uh, Miss Devine's comments may be the best summary of the general claims being made about CRT. Pretty sure I can't take the audio directly <laughs> from that conversation because someone would sue our pants off. Um, so allow us to summarize. Because honestly, listening to it in a vacuum is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so what you need to know about this conversation, um, about this quote that you're getting ready to hear as that this this monologue, these comments were made in the context of an appearance on Fox News during a discussion with uh, John Roberts. They were talking about Thomas Jefferson High School, which is actually just down the road from me. Hmm. 
and some changes that they are making in their admissions process to diversify the student body. Part of this diversification includes changes in how many Asian students they admit, as the student body is currently roughly 70% Asian. This is a very prestigious Aww. high school, so prestigious that they say it prestigious and not prestigious, like the rest <laughs> of us normal people. Um, it is like, it, it's a, it's a, it's like a STEM high school and it's really hard to get into it. So it's a great honor to go to this, right? Gotcha. So that's so what that is the know. context. I'm just going to apologize in advance for the words that are about to come out of my mouth. <laughs> um, just oh. kick back. I want you to enjoy this. This is everyone. payback for all of the terrible things that I've made John say before yep. in recording. You just gave me a lot of big words at the top of this episode. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> we know that the Chinese Communist Party. I can't. I can't even fucking do this. <laughs> I lost it. I lost okay. it. All okay. right. Try again. Okay. I'm done trying again. again. <clears throat> <sighs> I have to read ahead a little bit so that I don't trip over my words and have to read this nine times. You know what? I, I want you to keep all the mistakes in because I think it's worth it. Just go for okay. it. Okay. We know that the Chinese Communist Party is teaching their children reading and writing and arithmetic while we warp the minds of American children and indoctrinate them in this ideology that is Marxist in nature and that teaches them that America is an oppressive regime that is based on whiteness. And that if you are born with white skin, that you need to be humiliated and ostracized and punished. And this is not a recipe for success. It's a recipe for social upheaval and mental illness, frankly. Critical race theory, whiteness, you don't have to actually have white skin. But if you have the mentality of a white person, then you are white adjacent. I mean, you are just as bad as a white person. It's a sick ideology. It's a cult. And it has captured the Biden administration as well as every corporate and elite institution in this country. We are teaching white children to hate themselves. We are teaching non-white children that it's okay to torment and bully other children because of the color of their skin. It's not a healthy situation, and we should not be trying to inculcate children into this cult. We hear the Biden administration talk about this concept called equity, and equity is a Marxist concept. It is a dangerous, evil idea because it does not mean equality. It lulls you into thinking it means equality because it sounds a lot like it. But what it means is, oh my God, I made it so far. <laughs> but what it means is it's about equality of outcome, not opportunity. So equality means that everybody gets the same chance and through hard work you achieve. Whereas equity says, we don't care how hard you work. We want this outcome and we're going to force it. And human beings do not work like that. The only way you achieve that is with oppression. Mother, that woman is off her rocker. Is it not? Is it not incredible? I, I just. We could do yeah. an entire episode just picking that shit apart, right? Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The rhetoric coming from these these particular type of thinkers, it is pretty potent. Like that language is so charged. It sounds so oh, evil, right? It sounds like there's such a 
like a big deal going on. But I don't know where they're getting this idea other than they were they are intentionally trying to do something, which is what we're going to talk about. Right. Suffice it to say, the majority of this is based on a completely inaccurate understanding of not only CRT, but concepts such as equity and Marxism and and everything, really everything. Everything. We're going to get to that Marxist point in a little bit. Oh, good Lord. The reason for this particular tactic and the and the way it's worded and why it's worded like this, well, it's actually really obvious. It's not even buried. Let's talk about that. As with many of the cultural flashpoints that we talk about, this all boils down to politics, which really means that it all boils down to power. Rufo, yeah, he keeps coming up, specifically launched a campaign against CRT, aiming to turn the critical race theory toxic as part of a larger operation to, quote, put all of the various cultural inanities under that brand category. In one tweet, Rufo says, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory making the phrase a stand-in for an entire slew of perceived wrongs. That's why it gets related to women and gender stuff. When Charlie Sykes, an anti-Trump conservative, pointed out his endgame, Rufo made no attempts to pivot, saying, yeah, I envisioned a strategy to turn the brand critical race theory toxic, and despite having virtually no resources compared to my opponent's, willed it into being through writing and persuasion. God, I hate this guy more and more literally every time we say his name. I know. I I guess being a guest on the largest right-wing late-night show to air every night and therefore having a platform to yell your ideas into the largest echo chamber in the world counts as having virtually no resources. Right. Totally. It's definitely nothing. It's just... This all... All of these quotes are like you can google them because they're on his twitter yeah and his online writings like these are not hard to find no he's he's pretty blatant about what he's about yeah it's 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 a blatant attempt to manipulate conservative americans into reactionary politics and even though rufo the first architect of this admits it out loud on twitter It has actually been really effective in generating a ton of legislation focused on banning or otherwise paring down, quote, CRT in schools. As of July of this year, 21 states have either introduced legislation to ban critical race theory or already outright banned it. But remember, the definition of critical race theory is very academic like graduate level academic analysis in the last episode we discussed how difficult it was to actually define crt because there's no core or main aspect of crt it's relatively amorphous it's got those guideposts that we talked about earlier but that's kind of it and this in turn means that the legislation that has been introduced to counteract crt is broadly just working to undermine anything that could even vaguely be connected to critical race theory. Without a specific target, it's hard to develop specific legislation. 
Let's take a look at House Bill 3979 in Texas, which, if passed, says, quote, teachers can't be compelled to discuss current events, and if they do, they must explore it from multiple positions without giving deference to any one perspective. It also bans students from getting course credit for civic engagement efforts, like political activism, and forces teachers to take a training course in civics developed by the state. And it, it further adds a list of founding documents that are now mandatory teaching. Hmm. <laughs> but the wording of that bill is vague. Jocelyn Fauché is an educator in the Dallas Independent School District, and this legislation has already shown the potential it has for having a freezing effect on discussions about race in America. According to Fauché, part of this bill that kind of makes me freeze up is like feeling like I can't talk about race or feeling like I'm going to say something that's out of my lane, out of my professionalism as a teacher. If kids aren't able to make those connections about why this lesson matters to them, here, sitting in the classroom right now, we're really losing a piece of making school matter to kids. And another fabulous turn of events, okay. good old Missouri has once again demonstrated its solid understanding of happenings in the world by introducing House Bill 952, which targets the 1619 Project. Yeah. Which has nothing to do with CRT explicitly, but it's somehow falling under this umbrella. That's part of the argument for it. Which is exactly what Rufo's campaign intended. Anything at all, anything at all that is, quote, culturally inane gets thrown into this grab bag of whatever you want it to be, CRT, and then you just write a bill about it. Oh, God. The 1619 Project made people real, real mad. Which, I don't... Have you listened to it? Did you listen to it at all? Uh, I haven't yet, actually. I keep intending to, and... I listened to it before all of this craziness, and then I kind of went back and listened a little bit more after all this craziness, and I do not understand what everybody is so mad about. I just well, it, don't. It, it tells American history. Yeah, like... That's, that's the problem. It just... It, it feels so much like... I don't know. It just, yeah. Anyway, anyway, of course, Missouri's targeting the 1619 Project. Of course, of course, of course they are. <sighs> How dare a scholar use an academic framework to develop a piece of art? I mean, good God. Okay, so as you may have guessed by our repeated stressing that CRT is a graduate level academic concept, this already isn't taught in schools. However, it does impact our schools in that CRT scholars study things like racially segregated schools, underfunding of majority black and Latino school districts, disproportionate disciplining of black students, barriers to gifted programs and selective admission high schools and school curriculums. So in that sense, CRT is in our public schools, but it's used to make sure that our public schools are actually serving the public and not just part of it. That is, CRT is applied to ensure that minority students aren't at a disadvantage in our schools or that racist principles aren't being taught in our classrooms, which are goals I think every American, except the actual, like, explicitly, personally racist ones, can get behind. 
especially when they understand that it's it's just one tool in an entire toolkit. It's not even the only lens that has de- that is being used to develop these trainings. Right. It's just one of many. It seems then that what is really, really actually being targeted in this culture war isn't CRT itself, but it's something more akin to culturally relevant teaching. This is a teaching approach that developed in the 1990s, and it aims to affirm students' ethnic and racial backgrounds with critical thought and analysis. One aim is to help students identify and critique the causes of social inequality in their own lives. Practically, this means that teachers strive to make schools feel safe and supportive for minority student populations. Although, somewhat ironically, students of color make up the majority of school-aged children. Food for thought. So, while CRT may have impacts on policies or mission statements or resolutions, it's unlikely that educators are directly teaching their K-12 students critical race theory. It's hard enough to teach people how to use a comma properly. Like, <laughs> story. Cr- critical race theory is a whole other level. <laughs> Much less this end-of-days self-flagellating lesson plan that the right-wing media is decrying every night. Interestingly, though, it is causing these hosts and figureheads to promote the very things that they claim to rail against. The very laws that are intended to ban CRT may well be stricken down as violations of the First Amendment's protections of free speech. And and though I know we said we weren't going to talk about them, I just I gotta bring up that the tuck actually floated the idea of putting cameras into every teacher's into every teacher's classroom to monitor what they were teaching to make sure it wasn't CRT. I'm, this is, he supposedly represents the people who hate big government. Right. Right? Texas is supposedly one of those states that's run by the people who hate big government, but here they are like mandating trainings and saying you have to teach these things. And now we're going to put cameras in your class, not Texas, Tuck, the Tuck, saying that, that we should put cameras in classrooms. Like how very big brother of them, God. right? Orwell would be horrified necrotizing fasciitis oh god well speaking of horrifying things right last but not least the million dollar claim from every social media troll is critical race theory marxist nope well that's it for us good night good luck and god bless look i know we make that joke all the time and it's probably getting old But it's so hard to resist when we're trying to answer questions like this one and still keep these episodes to an hour and not keep tacking on episode after episode to a series. The reason I'm making it now is that it's very, very difficult to answer this question without making sure that everyone listening has a fundamental understanding of the full scope of Marxism and how it relates to the different facets of human society. But we're going to do our very best. Whew. You know, small goals. Small goals. So first things first, let's establish right now that Marxism is a socialist theory in the way that an apple is a fruit that grows on a tree. But it's not the only socialist theory that grows on trees. There is a significant tendency in this country and in political discourse to reduce all socialist ideas into one concept, 
the redistribution of wealth and then beat the drum against that concept. That reductionist logic will not help anyone understand this argument. Yes, that is one part of the Marxist philosophy, but it's not really the part that applies to discussions in the context of CRT. Secondly, we're going to circle on back to the opening of this episode where we talked about theoretical and conceptual frameworks. Marxism is an extensive, practical, theoretical framework that focuses on the conflicts between the powerful and the subjugated in society with economics at the root of the conflict. The theory expands out to consider criminal justice and anthropology and sociology and more. It's an extensive lens through which those who choose to can examine the world around them, and it provides a structure through which they can test ideas. And it is a perspective that has resonated with enough people throughout the world that there are groups and movements and governments that believe that it's the best framework for us to build society on. In the same way that many critics decried Dr. King and the civil rights movement as communist because of their demand for equality among the races, many critics of CRT are propagating the idea that critical race theory is just Marxism rebranded to focus on race in proxy for class when it comes to that domination slash subjugation dynamic. But as an academic framework, there is little in CRT that calls for a revolution of the subjugated <laughs> race or class and a forced redistribution of economic power. So where does the basis of this claim come from? Well, remember that CRT began as a conceptual framework that drew from a variety of theories to build its own guideposts. And one of those theories was critical legal studies. Critical legal studies itself drew from many other theories and thinkers to form the perspectives through which it examines structures and dynamics of power, and included in that pretty extensive list was Karl Marx. So, critics claim because one of the frameworks from which CRT drew inspiration drew its own inspiration from some aspects of the writing of Karl Marx, then critical race theory meets the criteria to be called Marxist. In the same way that basically one drop of black blood automatically stripped people of their dignity and autonomy in America's not-so-recent past, one thought drawn from Marxist theory seems to have stripped race theory of its dignity and autonomy as a standalone perspective on our world. But this logic just doesn't add up. The purpose of theories and frameworks like this is to build on one another with the goal of more fully understanding how the world around us works and incorporating a variety of ideas and perspectives in the process. Two frameworks can examine the same problem using similar theoretical perspectives and still come to different conclusions about what to do with the information that they've gathered. Case in point the very real conflict between critical race theorists and proponents of historical materialism. Historical materialism is a framework that encompasses the Marxist perspective on the history of society and how humanity has moved through phases of cooperation and subjugation while it works out how to meet its needs for survival. 
and how to create and operate inside these economies that it creates. And critical race theorists and historical materialists have been butting heads for years about the other's failure to acknowledge the importance of the elements most important to their own theories. CRT scholars accuse historical materialists of ignoring the importance of race in societal power dynamics. Historical materialists accuse CRT scholars of underestimating the ways in which capitalism drives exploitative systems. They're just not on the same page. CRT also finds itself in conflict with neo-Marxist theory because of its centering of white supremacy. Some neo-Marxists argue that CRT is actually damaging to radical emancipatory movements because it asserts that even low- and working-class whites are the beneficiaries of racism and racial privilege. And, like many critics of CRT, some Marxist scholars believe that CRT exaggerates the role that race plays in the power dynamics that drive American society. Suffice it to say that even though there are principles on which some CRT scholars and some Marxist scholars agree, there are also many, many ways in which the frameworks differ from each other. I mean, shoot, there are principles on which the Bible and Marxist theory agree. But that's not a can of worms we're trying to open here. Even though you just went, would you like some worms? Smell those fresh worms. Yeah. What we're trying to do here is point out that while CRT and Marxist theory may have had moments of convergent thought, they are far from the same. We keep saying some scholars when we're talking about these ideas because there is very rarely any kind of hegemony or overarching consensus about the details and applications of these frameworks. Each and every person working within these perspectives is an individual human, and their work is guided by their own perspectives and ideas and beliefs, much the same way that Robin and I have our own ideas and perspectives that come into our own episodes. Frameworks and theories converge and diverge in their heads and in their research, and that is what makes this valuable. One goal of academic scholarship is to analyze and examine our world and then give others that information so that they can actualize tangible ways to make it a better place. Not every person is going to agree with every plan for moving forward, and that's okay. Like we talked about in our conversation on tolerance, what matters most is that we're able to have conversations about the things that matter to us, and research like this gives us more tools with which to do that. Bam. I would drop my microphone, but it is very expensive, and I am not going to do that. Yeah, and yours is like mine, suspended by these little bungee things, so it is actually kind of yeah, hard to drop it. It's, it's really hard to drop it, actually. So we're just going to um, figuratively. But you can imagine it. Imagine it. Boom. Yes. We just dropped it. It's pretty cool. Um, so actually, that's really it for this episode. Honestly, we could have gone on and on and on about this um, because it's a topic that is as vast and broad as differences in opinion are. Yeah. Because that's what drives it. Um, but we hope, we know, we know, if you made it this far, we know the top of the episode was pretty <laughs> academic 
but that's what it is. When you discuss academia, you're going to get ab- academic. Yeah. Um, so thank you for hanging with us on this one. We hope that you found these episodes on CRT informative. We certainly did. Yeah. Has already come in super handy in my own personal discussions. <laughs> oh, so, yes. Oh, yes. Like, Do you know what you're saying? Anyway, um, if you liked these, if you thought they were helpful, if you thought that we did a good or bad job, but hopefully good job, yeah. you can reach us in a variety, a cornucopia of ways. There's lots of ways to call um, us Marxists. Lots of ways. You can call us Marxist on Facebook. You can call us Marxist on Instagram. You can call us Marxist on our website, uh-huh. firesidebreakdowns.com. Oh, yeah. It has a whole contact form. You can call us Marxist in long form there. You could theoretically call us Marxist on Twitter because that still technically exists. It does. You just won't see that one, most likely. Um, yeah, yeah, lots of ways. Um, if you thought we did a good job, please leave us a review. We're just, just need those reviews to come in. So important, so critical for making sure that this show spreads and meets a wider audience. Um, so thank you so much to the people who have already left this review. And I think that about covers it for all the places you need to know you can call us a Marxist. Yeah. I mean, the plug is so much more streamlined now that we have our own website. Yeah. Like, if you're going to call us a Marxist, just do it on our website. It's really the best place to do it. Yeah. Do you want to tell people that we have a Patreon? And then tell them where they can find our Patreon? Yeah, we have a Patreon. You can find our Patreon. There's a link on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. That's obviously... Um, also you can just search, I think fireside breakdowns on Patreon, yeah. patreon.com, like super duper, super easy. Yeah. Um, and then we'll see if we can throw the link into the show notes just to make it incredibly easy for people to find oh, it. Yeah. See how that works. We'll put it right there in the episode description. Right there. Yeah. Episode description, not the show notes. Yeah. All right. Robin, you got some good news for us? I got some us? good news. Hit me. Today. Our good news centers on the importance of equity in educational access. Totally relevant to this conversation. The Lansing School District in Michigan has announced that it will provide free pre-K to all students in the district this fall. The program is an effort to increase early education and positively affect graduation outcomes in the district. And it provides access to families regardless of their household income. Previously, only families with incomes that fell below a certain percentage of the federal poverty line qualified for these free pre-k programs but that policy excluded many families whose income was above that line but who couldn't actually afford the program for their children whether that was because of time or transportation or even cost so these students will also have access to food and transportation which fully resolves many of the issues that a lot of families have when they're attempting to roll their kids in preschool programs And we know from tons of research, educational theory research, variety of frameworks, variety of concepts, that pre-K education and early education directly impact educational outcomes in the future. So good on you, Lansing, Michigan. See if we can get that, you know, everywhere else. It's pretty stinking cool. It is cool. Um, So on that note. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will be back in one week to entertain and beguile you with tales of academic interest. Until that time... No academia. Not next week. Oh, it'll be academic. (laughs) Until that time, everybody, take care of each other.